Welcome back, you're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we find out what a life and career in science is really like from someone who's living it right now. I'm your host James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by ecologist, pollination biologist, and prolific science blogger, Dr. Manu Saunders. Manu, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. So you're coming off a big week a couple of weeks ago with the, the wild pollinator count. Tell us about this massive nationwide undertaking. <laughs> yes, it is It is rather large. Um, so we started at, I think it was 20, end of 2014 we started, and it, it started off as me and uh, Karen Richer, who was a friend of mine who loves bees, mm-hmm. and we had this great idea that we thought people need to know more about native pollinators because everybody thinks that European honeybees are the only pollinators in Australia. Um, so we thought... With all this free technology these days and online (laughs) free websites and access to social media and all of this sort of thing, it should be pretty easy (laughs) to run something um, that just got people outside noticing what insects were in their backyard. Yeah. So we started off and, you know, we both had other jobs and other full-time things to do and life Mm. and all the rest of it. But (laughs) we thought, you know, this should just be a matter of if we run it for a week twice a year, it's pretty much just that week that we have to kind of be doing things. Mm. And the rest of the year, we don't have to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a week in March and another week in November. Uh, April right? and November, oh, April? Yeah. yeah. So the idea with that was to, because obviously pollinator communities change over the season, so we thought if people, um, what you see in your garden in spring might not be what you see yeah. in autumn. Um, so the idea was that if people are going to start doing this regularly and contributing regularly, they'll start noticing these patterns in their own backyard and yes. get them engaged with what's going on with, with native pollinators. So it's a great idea yeah. in theory. <laughs> and it works really well, but it's now... So we're now a few years in and it's become a lot more popular more quickly than we thought it would. <laughs> Which is a good <laughs> Which thing. Which is awesome. <laughs> and it's great that so many people are so excited about pollinators. Yeah. Um, and it runs nationally, so any anyone all over Australia can uh, get involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's because it's so big now, uh, like at the moment I do all the data collation and analysis myself mm-hmm. and which previously used to, with, with a couple of or a hundred odd observations, it would just take me a couple of hours, whereas yeah. now we're getting like four or five hundred observations and there's a lot more... Um, data points that need to be cleaned and perhaps removed (laughs) and so on. Um, Plus the extra effort of, you know, it is, uh, we we naively thought that we could just do this for those two weeks, Mm -hmm. but you do have to keep the momentum going throughout the year and keep people, reminding people this is coming up and, you know, some people want to plan um, group events and, mm. you know, school events and that kind of thing. So they need to know in advance when it's going to be happening and all that sort of thing. So, and then there's media wanting to talk to you about the project and all the rest of it, which is really good <laughs> from an outreach <laughs> engagement perspective. Yeah. But we are realizing we now need to try and expand our team and yeah. get, get some staff <laughs> <laughs> to help run it. So, well, if anyone's <laughs> listening that wants to get involved <laughs> yes. in the Wild Pollinator Code. <laughs> Contact me. Yeah. <laughs> also, I guess for people that want to do the data collection side of things, mm. what's it involved? So it's uh, so it's pretty easy. The idea is you just to participate. All you have to do is go and watch a flower for ten minutes during that week mm-hmm. um, and count what 
insects you and, and what types of insects you yeah. see on the flower. So this is the other thing that we've been thinking about with this whole citizen science engagement thing. It's um, The data quality is a huge issue and there's been quite a lot of papers written about this mm -hmm. recently, um, ensuring data quality in citizen science projects. And sometimes you can't, and some projects are harder than others. Mm. And we're realising with insects, it is harder to ensure the quality. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we've kept the categories very general, so they're like like it's honeybees, which most people recognise, blue-banded bees, which mm -hmm. most people can recognise after, even if they've never seen one. After seeing a few photos, you kind of know, oh, that must be they a blue-banded blue bee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the rest of them are just flies, wasps, butterflies, etc. So we've just grouped them at that level yeah. to help people that don't have that um, taxonomic expertise. But that then is a, a compromise to then what sort of data quality you mm. get and what you can do with that data. Like yeah. we're realising we can't do a lot of analysis with it, mm. um, except for perhaps the, you know, if we just focus on the honeybees or something like that. Um, mm. And then the other thing is always, you know, how do you know that some, if someone says they saw two flies, how do you know that they weren't actually native bees? Because... You know, it's very hard. Even a lot of insect people and scientists wouldn't yeah. be able to recognise a lot of native bees. And some of them look very much like flies and some <laughs> and flies look very much like and, bees. Yeah. So it is, it's a lot harder to do this with insects. I think things like the bird, the Aussie backyard bird count, mm. you know, everyone kind of, even if you're not a big birdo or mm. you're not really, uh, you know, commonly out watching nature or whatever, you can sort of recognise what birds you've got yeah. and even if you don't know you can look it up and it's pretty easy to think oh yeah that, that's what I saw that's what it is kind yeah. of thing whereas with insects it's a lot harder so we're kind of going through all this at the moment and realising that I think sometimes you can't do both outreach and data quality in a citizen science okay. project and yeah. I'm wondering if there is this trade-off and you you can do one really well but not both mm. and so I guess because we started with the initial goal of awareness and engagement, it was more about just getting people mm. to realise that there were things other than honeybees yeah. pollinating. That was all we cared about. <laughs> and so I didn't, when I planned the data collection side of it, I didn't specifically think of data collection for science. I yeah. was just wanting people to look at what was in their yard. So I wonder if there is this, it's something I'm might look into. <laughs> but I guess the trade-off then is the amount of data and the scale of data you can get. I mean, yeah. coordinating 400 trained scientists to do this in a week, yeah. is, that's yeah. not going to happen. That's true. <laughs> so I guess if you, yeah, if you have the recognisable categories, it's, it's maybe mm. there's a bit more of a buffer. So, but lots of what we're hearing lately is that citizen science is the way to go for mm. science. It's about outsourcing data collection and that sort yes. of stuff, but you're, you're sceptical? Uh, I'm not sceptical. I mean, I think it's awesome, and I think that it is um, the way to go, but I think the way you design the project depends on, A, the science that's involved, mm -hmm. and B, what your goals are. And mm -hmm. I think that there are some, some projects, I think, well, there, not that there are some projects, but if a project, hypothetically, was... <laughs> just using people to collect data. Yeah. Um, I, I don't really 
agree with that as a citizen science. Like the, the purpose of citizen science is to engage people with science and get them to actually understand how science works, mm. what, you know, they, they, they should learn something out of the process instead of just collecting a sample and sending it off to someone yeah. else and not, then not having anything to do with, yeah. with the process. So I guess I think engagement is a really important part of a citizen science project and how, how you do that depends on the, the science. I mean, something like um, collecting leaves, say, like if you say you're a plant person and you want to, you know, collect samples from different plants across Australia or whatever of a particular species, like mm. it's a lot easier for a person who has no understanding of science and no background in plants or whatever to be able to go out and just chop some leaves off, put them in an envelope, yeah. <laughs> and you know you you know what you're getting kind of thing. Or water samples, for example, like anyone can collect a water sample and send yeah. that in. But then when it comes down to actually identifying things on the ground and submitting those observations, there is that gap between what data you get mm. and what they actually saw. Yeah. Um, and then that becomes harder with things like insects versus yeah. birds and mammals and whatever. But you feel a, a pressure to get good publishable data out of this sort of stuff. Outreach well, isn't enough. Is that the... No, like, I mean, I mean no, well, I, no, it is, I'm saying. Like, for, for me, it is. Yeah. Um, but yes, there is, I think there is increasing um, pressure from some areas where it, it's not seen as, and especially for funding, like if you would like mm. to get funding for your citizen science project, if you're not collecting data to do something sciencey with it, mm. it's not necessarily seen as worth funding. And I think that might be something that, people need to consider at the moment I don't so much care about the data quality side of it because all I, my main goal is to get people mm. understanding how many pollinators there are in the world yeah. that's really all I care about <laughs> so as long as people like if people just go outside and look and go oh my god there are these insects in my yard that I had no idea existed yeah, yeah. that's that to me is is a success of the project yeah. so whether or not we do anything with the data is something talk about <laughs> <laughs> but it's good that people are actually seeing that mm. it's not just bees yeah, yeah exactly and that's the thing like we've had so much great feedback and people sending us comments going oh you know this is so great and my kid love it, loves insects and had no idea about all these things that were pollinating the flowers mm. and now he loves going out in the yard all the time and watching yeah. so it's it's that kind of stuff that you realize well that's that's a success yeah like this person has gone from not knowing anything yeah. about insects or not caring to now they're in the yard all the time going, oh my God, look at that. Yeah. So <laughs> that, you know, if, if they misidentify things on the sheet, who cares? Yeah. And that's probably going to be important for the actual research that you do if land managers don't understand that it's not all just about bees. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, it is, it, it being involved in the project has also taught me a lot about how to engage with just anyone mm. um, on the subject of there are other pollinators in the yeah. world. <laughs> so it, it's been a good learning experience from that perspective. Yeah. And it you do, and you also just realise how hard it is to um, teach things like insect identification mm. um, without in-depth, you know, 
coming to a class and actually sitting down with people and going through keys and all that kind of thing. Yeah, it, yeah. it is so hard to just go, oh, yeah, that's that's how you work out if it's a B or a what. <laughs> well, actually, it's not that easy. Well, yeah, <laughs> sometimes the they look like this, and you know, it's yeah. lots of friends ask me, "Is that a wasp?" They go, "Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> sure, I guess." <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard, and I mean, I, we all struggle. Like I, I know when I like was IDing my insects for my PhD and. I many times identified things as a bee and would sit there going, I'd go through keys going, why isn't this keying out? Why can't I work out what species it is? And then I go, ah, oh, it's a wasp, right? That's why, that's why the key's not working. So it, it is a lot harder than, than birds and yeah. whatever. So. Right. And so we're, you know, understanding these things is pretty important because of the, what we call ecosystem services pollinators provide. Yes. For any non-scientists listening, can, can you explain what an ecosystem service is? <laughs> so this is another contentious subject. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, Stop asking these questions. <laughs> um, so ecosystem services are awesome and we should all care about them, yeah. basically, in a nutshell. That's yeah. what it is. Um, so it, it's essentially a fancy name for nature keeping us alive. Yeah. And so all, all of the benefits that we get from nature from air to clean water to food to all of that stuff that we take for granted that comes from natural environments, that's mm-hmm. that's what ecosystem services is, basically. So we've complicated it all, as usual. And <laughs> In what way? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so there are all these um, subsets and subcategories and all the rest of it. And it, I mean, it's developed, I guess, this idea of knowing that nature keeps us alive mm. is as old as humans existed. I think everybody knows that. And that's, I think that has been one of the biggest struggles with communicating the concept, the academic concept, to non-academic audiences because everyone's like, what? of course we know this. What, what the hell yeah. are you going to like? Why are you complicating everything and making it all? <laughs> so the, the concept itself sort of came out of the um, 70s and 80s. Um, I think it, it initially sort of started with, um, there was a lot of development going on and pollution and all the issues that um, had arisen through the 60s and 70s from like Rachel Carson's book and all those sorts of things where people started realising, hang on, all these things we're doing to the earth are kind of causing problems and they're affecting us and mm. our health and all the rest of it. So um, some scientists came up with this idea of ecosystem services as something, if we could value nature in some way and show some way that these systems were were actually quantifiably helping mm. us that would be an argument for politicians to go to them and go you got to stop cutting down these trees or you got to mm. stop developing this land because we're getting this benefit from it so that's sort of where it came arose from and then it developed through the 90s and so on and it's still developing and <laughs> there are multiple typologies and multiple ways of of talking about and describing ecosystem services uh, which tend to complicate things. But yeah, I think it's a really important... Mm. I think it is probably one of the truly unifying concepts of across all disciplines and not just scientific disciplines because it requires so much... It, you know, it's not just about isolated components. We have to look at the whole system and consider people and nature and all these other things that go on in these mm. systems. So 
I think it, it's it is very important for the next century. But, <laughs> but there are ways of you know, looking at a service like say pollination and actually somehow calculating a mm. dollar value of that service to agriculture or yeah. society, or whatever. Is, is that a good thing or is that <laughs> sad? Um, I think so. This is I think where a lot of the debate comes from. Is yeah. is is this the right way to do it's easy to do obviously and it, it's a very oh, is it easy is it well easy i mean it's relatively easy in the sense that you can calculate if you have if you sample pollinators and you sample and then you collect data on the yield and you can say well this we got this much yield because there were these many pollinators mm. and it cost this many dollars and whatever so in that sense it's relatively easy to come up with a dollar figure yeah. or a value um it's not necessarily a completely what's the word, representative value of what's going on in the system. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a value, and when you're talking about policy, the policy side of things and trying to get through to politicians and get them to change the way they do things, Mm. money talks, dollars Mm. talk, numbers talk, like that that gets through to them more than, oh, we need to save the pollinators. So Mm. I think, yeah, it's a difficult situation because at the moment that's really the best way that we have to do things. But I think most um, scientists who are working on ecosystem services know that it's not the optimal way from an ecological perspective. But mm. at the moment, that's that's kind of the only, only way that we can do this. But yeah, people are trying to work on developing more holistic ways of finding values, but it's harder than obviously... Well, what would be a holistic alternative? Well, how, you know? how, how do you, where do you even start? This is the thing. Like, <laughs> I mean, a system is a whole, a whole entire system. So this is the problem with a lot of those, um, the valuations that are just about isolated components. It's that, you know, yield, for example, is not just from pollinators. So mm. yield is a net outcome, which is, so this is a paper that I was part of a couple of years ago. Um, so yield is actually a net outcome of everything that happens in that orchard or crop field or whatever across the entire season. So it's pollinators, pests, natural enemies of pests, soil invertebrates, um, weather, like all of that stuff. Yeah, happens. rain, hydrology, yeah, exactly. everything. Like everything. And then at the end of it, you have this net, net outcome of the harvested yield that is able to be sold. Um, so you can't just say that that value of that yield comes from these pollinators or these natural mm. enemies even because it comes from all of it. And yeah. how do you quantify all that? And this is the thing is because we're not all specialists in every single field of scientists. So you can't expect a pollination ecologist that, you know, they can go out into the field with the best of intentions to do a really comprehensive assessment of, of how pollinators are influencing yield, but they don't know anything about soil invertebrates mm. or... They may not know much about pest control and they don't know anything about tree health and all of that sort mm. of thing. So you, this is why you need this, these interdisciplinary teams working on ecosystem yeah. services. And when you take it to that holistic level, it starts to become a bit absurd because it's like asking a house builder to put a value on gravity <laughs> <laughs> and how important gravity is for holding that house together. It's, yes. It's, 
it's just assumed that it's yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, it's, and this is, I know, I struggle with this as well because this, I mean, this is my field and I do get to that point sometimes. The more I start thinking about all this stuff, I go, well, you know, what is the point of this? Um, like, we just, we need to just accept that this is good, that yeah. having nature is good and just get on with it. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I think in, if you had to come up with a little nutshell thing, that would be it. It's just that the point of, of people, the people that work on this concept, I guess their ultimate goal is just to get people to realise that we need to conserve nature. Like cutting down and paving and getting rid of mm. doesn't help us in the long run. But proving that is yeah. a lot harder than it. It's easy to say and we all know it intuitively, but to actually prove that is a lot harder. Yeah, and then is it easier to directly link these things to things like agriculture as opposed to more fundamental things like natural landscapes and... Yeah, I guess so. And I think that's... So, I mean, that is a, another thing that I've seen some people argue about. Is is ecosystem services only applicable in anthropogenic environments because it's only about benefits to humans? But it's mm. it's not really because, I mean, the point of like a national park that this is where all these other values that can't have values, uh, dollar values put onto them come come in because we have recreation values, aesthetic values, like mm. the, the feeling that you get when you see a beautiful landscape. You can't put a dollar value on that, but yeah. that is an ecosystem service yeah. because you're getting that benefit from nature and it helps you mentally and emotionally. And, you know, you might be having a really crap day and you're about to have a breakdown and you go outside and look <laughs> at a beautiful vista and go, oh, my God, I feel so good now. <laughs> I can deal with everything. That, how do you value that? Like, well, I mean, there's... <sighs> There, are, there's research on that about mental health and psychology. Yeah, and there is. I mean, there are exactly. They know it happens, but to actually put that—that's why. Like, to, just to answer your question about agriculture, it is probably easier to put values onto things in agriculture because you're producing yields and you're producing outcomes, whereas that that have dollar values because mm. you're selling them on a market. Whereas these other services, which have had a lot of research done, and yes, there's heaps of awesome research about mental nature and mental health and well-being um but again the, I, I have seen i think there was one study or a couple of studies that have tried to link that to then the costs of health like the re reduced mm. costs of health care and from people interacting with nature yeah. which is it's i mean that again that's kind of the best way you can do it at the moment with the data and the understanding that we have yeah. but it's again not really that dollar value of healthcare isn't a direct representative nice. of the feeling we get from nature. So, yeah. <laughs> and Sorry, as, a, just... <laughs> as a field biologist, is is nature always a good remedy? <laughs> for, cause, well, I remember yeah, flipping out halfway through my PhD because I'd just spent a couple of months on end in the rainforest and... <laughs> was not handling the stress and we're having a counsellor just say maybe just go for a bushwalk or something <laughs> just, in the rain for yeah it's totally missed the point altogether yeah. <laughs> yes I, I think I mean well then this is the other side of it is these disservices that people talk about and so mm. um, that can be everything from having being stressed out from being in a particular natural environment or having an unpleasant experience with that natural <laughs> environment to things like disease spread you know like mosquitoes can spread disease 
So people can argue, oh, well, this wetland is mm-hmm. producing mosquitoes that are spreading disease, so therefore let's get rid of the wetland. But that kind of, again, overlooks the point of, well, maybe the reason the wetland is producing lots of mosquitoes that are pr- spreading disease is because there aren't enough mm-hmm. natural processes involved that are controlling the mosquitoes to stop them spreading yeah. disease kind of thing. So yeah. it, it is always these other levels of what's going on. But I I do agree, not everybody has pleasant experiences in, in nature all the time. <laughs> it still doesn't mean we should go and get rid of it. <laughs> but and we should just have it as more of our daily life. Yes. Your natural landscapes. So yeah. at the moment there's there's something other yeah. in our daily lives. Yeah. And I do wonder if, if that the more as we as humans become removed from nature with you know, there's increasingly urbanized communities and all the rest of it um i wonder if because as you say nature is not part of our daily life anymore Mm. then when we are exposed to it it's more of a shock and oh my god i don't know how to deal with this Mm. so i yeah i wonder where that's heading as we i think there are more and more people in the world that can literally get through entire weeks if not months without interacting once with with nature yeah like proper proper nature as opposed to like walking outside and breathing it but but anyway can i ask then does does that thought of removing the stigma of nature did that play a role in naming your blog (laughs) (laughs) which is ecology is not a dirty word dot com yes um so that was quite a coincidence i came up with that name before i did my started my phd and i had no idea I was going to end up working in ecosystems. Okay. <laughs> but essentially, I mean, that's where it came. The The name came from um, me realising um, that a lot of people in the broader community thought ecology was a load of... Hippy-dippy. Yep, greeny hippie stuff. Um, <laughs> and I was quite offended by that when I realised because <laughs> I'd just finished my degree in ecology and... It actually came from, I remember I was, I had a bit of a stint on, in the unemployment, good old Centrelink, um, yeah. unemployment queue. And I remember going to one of the, it was just after the GFC, the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were a lot of people had lost their jobs and all that kind of thing. And I had just finished uni and couldn't get a job. Mm-hmm. And so I was on Centrelink and I remember going to one of the job search network session things that you had to go to mm-hmm. to get your... and the woman went around the the room and we all had to say what we did like what our job was and what jobs we were what our profession or whatever it was Mm -hmm. um and what jobs we were looking for and everyone most of the people in the room were worked in hospitality or retail or something like that and there was i think there were a couple of business men that had just recently lost their jobs because of the Mm -hmm. gfc and then when it got to me and i said i'm an ecologist and the woman <laughs> said to me, I'm sorry, a what? How do you spell that? And <laughs> that was when I went, oh, hang on a minute. How, how, am I, how are you going to help me find a job when you don't even know what I do? Um, and then I realized that maybe this, like everyone kind of knows what science is, but a lot of people don't sort of think, like naturally think of life sciences and natural sciences as part of science. Like mm. when people think science, they think chemistry and you know, physics and robots and space travel and all that kind of thing. Um, And so, yeah, ecology is not a dirty word, just was essentially me saying. 
we need to care about ecology. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is a proper science. Yeah, I mean that's something I've actually spoken about on the podcast before. Being in the science communications sort of sphere, and we talk about STEM and things like that. Mm. Yeah, people love to highlight robotics and engineering and that yep. sort of stuff, and. Yeah, life sciences are yeah they're just not as trendy. No, and I, I don't know. I it it I think there is an aspect of media as well here. I think that um, you know when you think of um, I my classic example is the James Bond movies because I love James Bond movies. <laughs> um, <laughs> when you follow the the traje- trajectory of all the James Bond movies over time, yeah, they most of them will have a scientist in there somewhere yeah. doing something. Um, and at, in the earlier days and probably up to the 80s and 90s even um, the scientists were always chemistry mm. robot-y type scientists doing things in labs in white coats yeah. and all that kind of thing and then it was just the last few um, I can't remember the first one the name of the first one was it um, the Daniel Craig ones yeah the, it was, the I think it was Casino the first, Royale I think no, it might have been the one just prior to that where they went... Quantum of Soul. No. Yeah, no, it was Quantum of Soul. And the last one. Uh, the last one. Skyfall? Yeah, Skyfall, yeah. No, there's something after Skyfall. No, I can't the, the... There's another one coming. Oh, God. So I'm supposedly a big fan of Anyway, yeah. in these last few, they've all had a kind of environmental bent to them. And mm. the issue and the big drama that's kind of the central plot um, thing <laughs> context um, <laughs> sorry I haven't had my second coffee um, <laughs> is is an environmental issue so in one of them it was water there was the issue with the village um, in Chile or wherever it was where the bad guy had gone and stolen all the water from the town and they mm. all had no water and they were going to die because of the drought and blah 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 um, and then another one there was some other type of environmental thing and the, the Bond lady um <laughs> I remember she was an environmental scientist in one of them. I can't remember. Oh. Just, yeah, just recently. I remember it was the first time I went, oh, hang on a minute. You've caught up with the times. Because that way, instead of having a, you know, chemist in a lab coat somewhere, it was actually, she was just wearing normal clothes out in yeah, the forest yeah. and she was an environmental scientist. So, and I've started noticing this in some movies and TV shows as well. Mm. Like, they're kind of going, oh, hang on, doing environmental stuff is also science. But a lot of the media, I mean, when you look at most news um, websites they separate environment news from mm, science news science and technology yeah the... so like science is one category and if you look through those stories in 90% of them if not all will be stories about robot-y stuff and space yeah. travel and you know new cures for diseases and all that kind of stuff and then there'll be another category on another page that is environment and nature or something and it'll yeah. be all fluffy nice stories about cute animals and beautiful landscapes and and one they might occasionally have a couple of stories about you know some fracking or something that's yeah. affecting the environment but there is this divide and i think most people who get a lot of their information from media and tv shows and whatever it, it's just feeding this idea that oh okay environment is different to science mm. and they're separate categories so I do wonder how that affects people's... I mean, hopefully it's a cyclical sort of cultural thing. So imagine a couple of decades before you know, the early James Bond movies, scientists would have been yes. your, your Dr. Livingston and your pith helmet. Yeah, and... exactly. I think early 1900s, well, James Bond wasn't being made then. Um, 
but I mean, all through this, like the whole Victorian naturalist thing, like that, that, that through that Victorian era and the early 1900s, natural history and ecology were like the the best. Well, even earlier than that, like that's yeah. how they found out so much about science was naturalists that went around looking at things mm. and collecting specimens and working out dissecting them and whatever. So really, ecology. I won't make any friends say that, but <laughs> ecology could potentially be the first science. Anyway. <laughs> what? Well, there's, there's a solid argument for that, maybe. <laughs> well, actually, we won't get into that. Wait, I it, would hope so. It's actually bugging me. I can't remember the name of the James Bond movie. Was it Spe- Spectre? Spe- yeah, that was that it. That doesn't sound right. No. Yeah. No, Spectre's the name of the organization that's the, the bad dude. I'm, I'm, I have a computer here. I'm going to Google it. <laughs> <laughs> and and if this is actually a trend where we're seeing more environmental scientists in uh, movies, I hope so. Do you so. think this was actually started by, uh, was it Fire Down Below, where Steven Seagal played in the EPA Oh, agent I, I don't with watch the g- <laughs> <laughs> but perhaps I think it's called Fire Down Below, okay. and there was some fracking going on ah, or something, and so Steven Seagal came and sorted it out with when his was, fists. What what era was that? I mean, like early nineties oh. or something. I, I don't really like him, so I probably <laughs> didn't watch it. <laughs> but Possibly, I, yeah. There, I remember there were a few other, not James Bond movies, but there were other movies I remember seeing in in the nineties to two thousands and thinking, oh, you've actually included an environmental scientist in the story, which is pretty cool. So. <laughs> yeah, two thousand fifteen Spectre. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I think Skyfall was probably my favorite. Yeah, that was one. awesome. Oh, so good. But anyway, <laughs> you're a science blogger. <laughs> yes. And. You actually just recently published about science blogging and, and how important it is. Yes. Uh, specifically about science community blogs. What, what, are, what are they? Yes, so it was a bit of a new term for me as well. But um, it's, I think, so the paper kind of just came out of, uh, it's co-authored with a bunch of other ecology bloggers, most of whom most people probably already read. So um, Meg Duffy from Dynamic Ecology and Stephen Hurd and Terry McGlynn and Simon Leather and um, a couple of other people. And we all follow each other's blogs and have been commenting on each other's blogs for a couple of years. And then this came out of actually Simon wrote a post um, at the end of last year on his blog about his year on, on his blog and stat, mm. a few stats and all the rest of it. And then that they sort of started a, he and a couple of other people started an email conversation and then they thought, oh, let's write an opinion piece out of this. And then mm. they emailed me and asked me if I wanted to be involved and that's how it kind of came to being. <laughs> um, but the idea was, I think, we realised that there is this other side to blogging, that most people think of blogs as outreach, science communication, writing for non-scientists or non-specialists and explaining science in easy ways for people that aren't familiar with it. Mm. And that's what it has been, I guess, for a long time. Um, And I started my blog with that intention. But then I found that, like, especially as I got further towards the end of my PhD and then into my postdoc years... Um, I realised that I'd 
started writing more about academic things. So, mm. you know, issues like peer review and, um, you know, being a postdoc and, mm. you know, academia generally and all those kinds of things. And I realised it was a completely different audience to, and I would find that I had different engagement from different aspects of, of my audience. Mm. Um and they, these people that I co-authored with had found similar things. And some of them actually write predominantly community-focused, so academia-focused blogs rather mm. than... So Dynamic Ecology is a classic example. They never write science communication. And they are open about that because that's not their goal. Their goal mm. is to talk to other academics. Um, so that's kind of where we came up with this idea that people aren't... Maybe this has kind of gone under the carpet in a sense that mm. <laughs> people are still thinking of blogs as this this thing for science communication and if you don't really want to engage with that or you don't have the time to do science communication or whatever you don't consider taking up blogging Mm. but if that's not your thing you could potentially take up blogging to write Mm. about academic issues which which maybe some people haven't thought of so that's kind of the point of the paper just to point out the value of blogs from that angle and how you know they can be a source of advice and mentorship and especially for younger researchers that maybe don't know who to talk to about things at their institution Mm. they can maybe find a blog that will help them with a particular issue that they're having or something yeah i mean is that the same sort of issue there and that people assume it's not sciencey because it involves feelings and (laughs) (laughs) experiences and opinions and stuff yeah so i guess that is that is a big part of it and i mean this is the thing that you have to remember when reading a blog is that it is someone's opinion but that doesn't negate its value Mm. like um and often i mean i've had many occasions where i've um read a blog of someone that is going through clearly has been through or is going through something that i'm going through at that exact moment Mm. some frustration with academia or supervisors or whatever it is and just reading that in that moment is enough to go oh thank god i'm not the only one i can do this instead of (laughs) oh my god i'm gonna quit (laughs) so Yes, I think it, it definitely, yeah. there is that, that other side to it that has been kind of overlooked. Mm. But I feel like we're, or quite often students are told, you know, you've, you're an independent researcher now, you've got to have an online presence, you start your own science blog. But it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. <laughs> and honestly, like, I, I don't think everybody should start a blog. It's not it's not something that you should feel forced to do if it if it's not if it doesn't come naturally to you not everybody likes writing like it's Mm. that's there's nothing to be ashamed about you know it's just not everyone likes writing (laughs) so to force yourself to start a blog um if that's not really your natural way of communicating i don't necessarily think that's that's the best way you you know you have other skills and other ways of communicating that you could probably do better Mm. so you should focus more on that I think definitely an online presence, everybody needs to have that these yeah. days. It's just unfortunate um, <laughs> side effect of the century we live in. But if you don't have an online presence, you need to have one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's just a static page about who you are or a Twitter account or something, you've got to be online somewhere. Mm. Google Scholar, most important. <laughs> well, it's a similar with social media. We're all told we need our own Twitter accounts and mm. things. But, I mean, I don't. my brain doesn't work in social mm. media... Mm. Had fragments or speed or anything like that. I, I, yeah. I'm a terrible tweeter. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
exactly. And that's the thing is that it's not for everyone. And mm. I, I think, I mean, there are enough different tools available now on mm. online that there, everyone should be able to find some platform that works best for them. And I don't, mm. I don't agree with these blanket statements of you all have to be on this or you all yeah. have to be on that. Except Google Scholar. Because, <laughs> but that's a professional thing because yeah. people Google, like people look you up and yeah. people want to know, especially when you've applied for jobs and things, um, that's no one wants to admit it, but that's what happens. People yeah. look you up to find out what you published, and the easiest way to have all your publications in one spot is Google Scholar. Yeah. So you have to have that. <laughs> but aside from that, you you know you just choose what works best for yeah. you. And I I love writing, so my blog works for me, and I found that Twitter works for me. But I hate Facebook. I don't do Facebook. Mm. I'm not on any of the other Instagram and. Yeah. What it's whatever else they are. I can't even think oh, of all their names. But endless list of whether you want to go down the Tumblr route, to, if yeah, you want to have a exactly. Pinterest, you know. <laughs> what do exactly. You do? So I don't bother with any of that stuff. It's just these two things, blog and Twitter work for me. Yeah. And I'm happy with that. But other people find other things work best for them. Yeah. So. And I mean there's people that do their own comic strips. And, yeah, exactly. You know, so. Science art interpretations and stuff yeah. that, that works for them. Exactly. So I think that's the thing is we need diversity of different types of engagement and not not just saying that. I think as an audience, we have to actually support that. And mm. that's what I think people, that's what I think is overlooked sometimes. Instead of just all going to Twitter to find our information mm. or all going to Facebook to find our information, we as, as consumers of information need to actually go and, and find a broad range and, and support different types of engagement so that those people will still choose to have those different types of engagement, yeah, if that yeah. makes sense. And so you, I'm one of those classic cases where you know I started my own online website and I managed to blog you know, once a week for the first <laughs> couple of months and I haven't done anything in, what, three years now or something yeah. like that. Yes. <laughs> but you managed to keep it up. Yeah, I, I do. I've found that I have longer between posts now <laughs> just because life gets busy and I yeah. guess as a PhD student I had more time <laughs> as you do it's hard so. to think for that but yeah you're so right. I was writing like every couple of weeks I'd post something but whereas now I find um, I do try to keep something I try to post twice a month so every roughly every fortnight yeah just because I, I do find that you start losing your audience the longer you you miss a blog <laughs> Fortnightly <laughs> podcasts, I know what you mean. <laughs> exactly. So I do try to, to maintain that, but anything more. Than, I mean, I see some of these bloggers overseas, like, well, Dynamic Ecology, classic example, although they do have three authors to mm. share between them, so that's probably a lot easier. But um, Stephen Hurd, like, he is just amazing. Like, he's literally, like, posting every second day. I, I just can't keep up. I don't even read half of them because I just I miss half of them. Yeah. And by the time I I have time to look again, then I'll read that one. But so, yeah, I think it's just up to everybody has their own way of doing things. But does that mean you have to get into that sort of writing psyche of dedicating time to uh, sit and pump something out? I don't know. Like, I mean, I guess everyone's different, and some people like that schedule of knowing having something mm. like knowing what day they're going to write something or post something or whatever um i'm more of a I, like i just write when i have something to say so mm. if if i don't have anything to say at the moment no, <laughs> i'm not going to post something or you know or i'll i'll find something just a little interesting 
tidbit about pollinators or something to post as opposed to writing a, a proper blog or something mm. if I feel like I need to post something. But otherwise, I just wait till I've got something to say. Yeah. yeah. So the you have your your niche of finding writing as a means of expressing things. Does this come from a, a sorted past in media and communications? Is uh, that... <laughs> possibly. So. <laughs> um, yes. So my first degree was I did an arts degree first, yeah. um, which didn't get me a job, but uh, <laughs> but it was great. I, I love it, and I, I'm so glad I did it. It wasn't yeah. a waste of time. But so I majored in English and communications. So I did because I loved writing. Mm-hmm. Like I'd loved writing in high school. Um, and then I know it's funny actually. People often talk about going into science, knowing they always wanted to be a scientist and whatever. And I, yeah. I never, I didn't even. <laughs> I don't think I even really knew what a scientist was when I was a kid. Like I spent a lot of time outdoors and yeah. um, we because we didn't have TV, so I playing outdoors was my entertainment. So I had to just work out ways of yeah. entertaining myself. Which I mean, we lived in a ruralish area, so that was easy to do. Yeah. So I guess I was always into nature. And I always liked wildlife and nature kind of thing. But I never really considered science as a career. I never thought, oh, mm. I can be a scientist. Yeah. It was, I like writing and I loved ancient history. So I want to go and study writing and be a writer. And I didn't, <laughs> you know, when you're young, you don't really think about these things. But, um, so I went off to uni and did an arts degree and whatever. And then... And that was just purely for interest sake? Or was well, the plan to I'd, become a, a... I think I did initially... Well, I started off wanting to be an archaeologist until I realised that you have to pay your own way through life (laughs) and research. Um, So then I thought I'll be a journalist because I I like writing and I'm a good writer, so that should be a pretty good career. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then as I started studying journalism and learning what you actually had to do to (laughs) become a journalist and cadet journalism. and Pretty cutthroat. Yeah, you know, death knocks and... You know, asking people whose sons just died, oh, how do you feel sticking a microphone in their face mm. and all that kind of thing. I just thought, oh, this isn't me. I can't do this. Yeah. Um, so, but I finished the degree because I was like, I'm not going to drop out. Mm. But I just changed the majors a bit. So I, I kind of ended, I finished the degree not really knowing what I was going to do because mm. by then I'd realised, hang on, <laughs> this, this, <laughs> I don't have a career path anymore. Um, and then anyway, I floated around for a while and, then one day after an um, interesting life-threatening experience, um, <laughs> I <laughs> realised that I really loved nature. And so I thought, okay, well, like, I've always liked nature. Why don't I go and do something? I think that was the first time that I thought, oh, maybe I can have a career with this. Mm. And UQ had just started a new Bachelor of Environmental Science degree at that time. So I thought, oh, and coincidentally, the government just changed the rules so you could get hex for a second degree. Right. Yeah, because they were trying to, because people were, I think it was around the GFC thing, or it was about to happen or something, so they were getting employment, whatever. Anyway, so I went back to uni to do that, still not really knowing I could be a scientist. Mm-hmm. And then I think I thought I was going to be a parks ranger or something like that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> And then as I went through the degree, I realised, ah, oh, I actually like research. So. Yeah. Anyway, that's a really long-winded writer. I can't even remember yeah, what yeah. you asked me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so it's good that you had a, had a sort of life-changing experience and it gave you this sort of yes. clarity to say, this is what I like and this is what I'm going to focus on. Yes. Ecology. 
was it then a shock to realize that it may be just as cutthroat and yeah i know <laughs> i didn't i had no it's funny <laughs> I, I say this all the time i went back to uni to do environmental science because i wanted to work outdoors that was that yeah. was my thing i was like oh, i realize i love nature i just want to be outside all the time i hate office jo- i'd done a few office jobs yeah. and just was so unhappy the yeah. whole time and now look where I am, <laughs> sitting in front of a computer all the time, so inside an office. But anyway, at least I do get more variety and I do get to do field work, which you don't get in an office job, so. Yeah. Yes. Well, maybe, <laughs> we could, maybe next time we have in the podcast, we can actually talk about your research and yes. <laughs> we've, got, we've covered yes. life and... Sorry. You know, blogging and everything. No, it's is exactly... <laughs> <laughs> this is about you know we're we're doing the same thing as your blogging here. We're talking about yes, cool life in science exactly. and the type of people that are scientists. And yes, everyone has different backgrounds. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but if people want to follow your blog and see what you're up to, it's ecology is not a dirty word. dot com. Is that right? Yes. Yep. That's right. And you're on Twitter. Yes. At at Manu Saunders. Pretty okay. inventive. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. At least it wasn't taken. Yeah, true. Tons of James O'Hanlon's out there. Yeah. I missed out. <laughs> and if people want to get involved in the wild pollinator kite, we're yes. talking about the next kite is in April. Yes, uh, second week, second full week of April. I think it's twelfth or some date like that. Mm-hmm. It's all on the website wildpollinatorkite.com. All right, check it out. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> right. Thank you guys for listening. Check us out at inc2science.com and we're at inc2science on social media. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net. Dot au.